0: The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Switch to Aussie-owned Red Energy today, Prince Wine Store, bringing Melbournians the greatest wine in the world, and Cobram Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil, grown, harvested and first cold-pressed in Northern Victoria. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin.
1: Welcome everybody to episode 281 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. It's spring in Melbourne. The finals are upon us. Spring is not upon us today to time code this conversation. It's pouring with rain outside. Corrie and I are off to a very smart spring lunch and we're going to be wearing winter clothes. Hello, Corrie.
2: (laughs) Oh, Caro, the spring dress was there saying, please take me to the NGV Women's Association lunch. Please, please, can I go? And I said to the dress, 12 degrees, not a chance. Stay at home. So look at me. I'm dressed in total business suit and coat. What a boring look it is. You anyway.
1: look, you're looking very shmiko. I'm clearly looking at me going home to change. It's um, the, the National Gallery is a beautiful spot for the spring lunch and it's where you see lots of floral floral, floral frocks <laughs> <laughs> but not today. But Miss Jane has, in the spirit, brought in some beautiful daffodils. We must thank Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Switch to Aussie-owned Red Energy today. Thank you for all your support, Red Energy. And of course, Prince Wine, still bringing Melbourne's greatest wine, the greatest wine in the world, and the wonderful Cobram Estate. Corrie's recipe looks like a Cracker today, the premium Australian extra virgin olive oil that is contributing to all our recipes. Corrie, we've got a bit of homework to do. First of all, can I kick off with an apology? Oh, a few weeks that's ago, it's unexpected.
2: I didn't think you'd done anything wrong. The last, well, I few I, weeks. I panned
1: the ABC's Bay of Fires when I after watching the first two episodes. We um, it's. With Martha Dusseldorp, it's got an unbelievable Australian cast, including one of my favourite Australian actors, Pamela Rabe, local Melbourne actor. And it had it came off a great premise, but it didn't know what it was. Was it funny? Was it a drama? It was brutal. It was murderous. involved the Russian underworld. It involved a lot of death. And yet it was trying to be funny. But somehow, as the series has gone on, it's morphed into something absolutely gripping and really so you, enjoyable. You stuck with it. I've stuck with it. I missed It finished on Sunday night, and I haven't watched the last episode, but I will, and I just want to say sorry, Bay of Fires. I (laughs) gave you a chance, and you're a lot better than I originally said. Corrie, we also have a save the date. We are doing a live podcast at Crown Melbourne in the Metropole Precinct. Very important, the Metropole Precinct. Look that up. It's pretty easy to find. We're doing it in two weeks' time. On Tuesday, the 19th of September, we have a special guest, Deborah Conway, author of a new book that I am about to review. And we can also tell everyone. So remember that one? That's Tuesday, the 19th of September at Crown, 9am in the Metropole Precinct. Special guest. We might even have a song or two. Miss Jane, looking forward to seeing you there as well. Um, And then on Thursday, November 16, Corrie, We're doing a big live podcast at Red Energy in Richmond. Tickets are on sale soon. That's going to be a big day at Red Energy's HQ. Apparently, they've got a great area.
2: Yeah, well, they've got a slide, a slide from one floor to the other. But pardon the pun, Caro, but it's going to be electric. (laughs) Uh, Well, if anybody has been to our end of year or indeed our Mother's Day events that we have, be there or be square. It's just such a fun time, isn't it, Cara? All the potties come together. We have a glass of wine or champagne or mineral water, in in my case at the moment, and we have a great time. And I'm so excited to be going to Red Energy's headquarters in Richmond.
1: We've got a lot to discuss today, Corrie. We've had a lot of um, private correspondence. Jane Labine is one of our favourites. Couldn't believe... I enjoyed Asteroid City. She thought it was dreadful. She agreed see, with everything else. I did see that in the mailbag. Um, but, Jane, you know, that's why this is a great world. We all disagree. <laughs> I went with Anna from the op shop. We both loved it. I must say, when you were describing
2: it last week, did you see that I was looking more and more quizzically at you? It's a crazy film. Yeah. <laughs> but it's beautiful. It's actually beautiful. Yeah. And The Redemption. It looks lovely on the shorts. I,
1: yeah, it's we loved it, but you know, I can I, not everybody loved it. The reviews were mixed. So, um, and Corey, do you have any correspondence?
2: I do on uh, our Instagram account, which is don't shoot pod. Hey, Jules one eight seven says I've started listening to Tom Lake by Anne Patchett. It's read by Meryl Streep. It's fabulous. That was the book, of course, that I so famously declared last week to be my novel, best novel of. Twenty twenty three. So far, I have to preface it by saying, so far, um, there was a bit of uh, there was a bit of feedback on that, and also a bit of love in the room for Panda, my dog, who a couple of people said, "What dog is it? Is he?" And somebody jumped in and said, "I think Panda is a she," which she most certainly is. What breed is that gorgeous doggy? Says Angelique, "She is a border and there's more border collie than poodle." which is why she rounds up the grandchildren. But it was lovely to have Panda in the studio last week, making a mess of your coat, um, Caro. And Georgina mm. French via email um, says that she's writing from Paris as she celebrates her 40th birthday. She has She's with her two children, her husband. Her two children miraculously are still asleep at 7.30 a.m. So she's listening to our dulcet tones with a cup of tea while her husband runs down to the bakery to buy warm baguettes and croissants. Not a bad start to the day. Oh. Yes, Georgina, we wish we were there with you. <laughs> and Georgina continues, I'm listening to you talk about the MCC and work of the late, great John Kane, who made it possible for women to be part of this wonderful club. I work for the MCC at Lords in London as a lawyer. Oh, and my father, Peter French. Carol, you and I remember Peter French. Oh, he's a yeah, wonderful oh, man. V- Long time, and, and the MCC, yeah. Veteran of the MCC yeah. executive. Um, and he was a football, he was with one of the amateur... Wasn't he president of one of the amateur clubs? Anyway, I'll think about that. Um, anyway, I used to work for the MCC in Melbourne, so we have strong links to the clubs. My mum now plays bridge with my aunts, who Caro and Corey both know, and I hope one day she might play a game for the MCC, as Caro did recently. And she said maybe against Marleybone Bone during the next Ashes series down under. Anyway, thank you always for your wonderful and intelligent conversations. I adore the podcast. It's a slice of home. I shall toast you all with a goblet of provincial rosé in the sun today. Well, in fact, provincial even, rosé, which is Oh, what did nicer. I say? Provincial. Provin- Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> provincial. I know what you mean. Um, it's pale and beautiful and you enjoy that, Georgina. Georgina that's such a lovely – if anybody does have any um, little – notes that they'd like to send us, please do. Feedback at dontshootpod.com.au. We love hearing from you wherever you are in the world. And also, just on that topic, Tim Pay one via Instagram said, I'm listening while I'm on the ferry from Dubrovnik to Bari. Oh! Wouldn't that be Half your nice. luck. Half your luck. And, so there um,
1: you go. And our friend Sally Howe's been in touch. He enjoyed our conversation on the subject of gay footballers. And he also... Um, mentioned that she did Sorrow and Bliss last year for her book club and really was looking forward to our take on it and enjoyed that too. So thank you to all the correspondents, Corrie. We've got to talk about The Voice, I think, this week, Mm. Um, even though it's apparently dividing Australia, which is just the most terrible, terrible indictment, I think, for some reason, I feel, on our country. But we have to talk about it this week because the campaigns have been launched with a ferocity I must say, with a ferocity. Um, I'm, we're going to talk about Neil Mitchell later, but I just want to say he said something very strange on Monday. He said, "This, yes, 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 the more I'm hearing yes, I just feel like voting no. Oh, dear. And I'm thinking, oh, no, Neil, I don't really think... <laughs>
2: That's anyway, not the reason to vote. To vote. Look, it's um, isn't it complex? And it's just so sad that it's actually become a... Uh, uh, party politic kind of thing with point scoring between the two leaders. But
1: it's clearly, clearly become, you know, an issue divided by two different ideologies, which is terrible. I mean, I I know I'm not – I don't think I suffer from cultural cringe, but I am concerned – I do feel sad at the way I think Australia is going to be regarded internationally if we don't do this very simple thing. I'm getting very tired – of people who are muddying the waters and talking about the Uluru Statement from the heart. Well, it's only meant to be one page. Well, now it's 15 pages. And what about... No, no, just read it. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, very simple. And also, can I just Just say, Caro,
2: on the Sorrento Writers Festival Instagram account, we do have Thomas Mayo reciting it from beginning to end. I think it goes for about a minute and a bit. So um, just have a listen to that. I think the most... Two interesting things on the weekend, Caro, opposition leader Peter Dutton added confusion or i felt it's confusion to this debate by declaring that if he becomes pm he will instruct a referendum that includes acknowledgement of first nations people in the constitution but will not enshrine want... it will not enshrine a voice to parliament so but i thought he didn't want a referendum because it was too costly <laughs> that was one
1: of the reasons well
2: it, the inconsistency is so <laughs> weird but um but it it really um my first instinct was um i mean peter dutton says that Constitutional recognition is the right thing to do, so good on him for that. And previous Liberal leaders like Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison tried to get that moving as well, so good on them. But um, the Indigenous leaders have said to Peter Dutton: number one, the expense; number two, it's like you're putting off something. Why are you? They they refer to it as kicking the can down the road. If I was a First Nations person, who whose people, eminent people lawyers and community leaders had all sat down and crafted the Uluru statement from the heart. And if my people had worked with governments over decades on the voice idea, I would feel like saying to Peter Dutton I, I mean, I feel like Peter Dutton is saying to me, Here's a piece of cake, but you can't stay at the party. Like, it's just it's just um it's it's not what they want. It's not what they're asking for. So Peter Dutton is kind of inferring this is this is the way we should go but it, he hasn't consulted indigenous folk on this or well, not that i know of well he, just come he's, out and he's said he's it.
1: consulted the no the no people. he's not yeah the Look, no people it, the the big Sorry, um, I take that back there was there was a the the no vote got on the front foot very quickly when the news broke that john farnham had allowed his anthem the voice to lead the yes campaign commercials Which are incredibly moving. That was my second thing on the weekend. Wasn't that amazing? I thought it was, but I thought the no people very cleverly quickly turned this into a backlash against top end of town, rock stars, high profile sport, because of course the AFL and the NRL have taken strong positions on The
2: Voice, as have... I think all the AFL clubs have, and I'm pretty sure the NRL clubs have. And, and the and the opening line, "You're the voice," try and understand it, which was pretty clever of the No campaign to zero in on that too. Yes, yep. So, so the backlash was quick. It was suddenly
1: they knew this was going to be a game changer. Who nobody dislikes John Farnham. Everybody, I mean, I, don't, I can't think nobody dislikes him. He's just one of those people. And this voice, this song, has become a secondary Australian anthem, and it's about resurrection. Not only did the song resurrect John Farnham's career, well, let's have a bit of a listen, Miss Jane.
2: I have goosebumps. And, you know, I've, wa- I've watched this now four times. I hope the Yes campaign has the money and the funds to put it on commercial television. I gather that's happening as we speak. But if you've seen it on social media, everyone, I defy anybody to not be moved by that vision, and very cleverly, they've picked on. It was identified on the weekend that the biggest obstacle generation or the or the demographic to the yes campaign or the yes vote is men, white men, over the age of fifty. What these what the producers of this video have done very cleverly is a man and his wife and his children in 1967 watching the referendum. Um, which acknowledges um, Indigenous folk and gives, and ultimately gave them the right to vote, and we watch that family grow right through, right through America's Cup, Kathy Freeman's win, um, the reconciliation, reconciliation walk across the Sydney Harbour Bridge, right through uh, marriage equality, like all these great moments in Australian history. Nicky Ma
1: lifting up the jumper.
2: Exactly, all these great moments, and the family ages, and the bloke ages as well. Interestingly, he's a St Kilda supporter. <laughs> but, but, I, but I just, I've, I've, I found it so, it's so clever because the ad does actually make you work hard. For our generation, all of those things are familiar to us. You and I were little girls in 1967, so we've gone right through with this television family. Um, if you haven't, so I asked one of my kids today, what did it mean? Coco said, I've watched it three times and I have cried every time. And, she, and I said, why have you cried? And she said, well, the music gets to you. But the other thing is the sadness that it has taken so long. So young people in Australia are wondering, what's the problem here?
1: <laughs> well, my, my family yeah, have just... had a, a similar response. It's interesting, um, though. all those moments, certainly the America's Cup, which was just a... a, just a America's Cup was um, a, a win from the cloud, something no one had ever done. And it happened off the back of an impossible margin of, you know, Australia... Two had lost three races. They needed to win four in a row to win. They had no hope, and they won. So is that symbolic? I don't know. Well, we but punched above our weight, I guess. Yes, and the the Kathy Freeman and Nikki Winmar moments were both moments, and I've talked about this in previous weeks where you felt they were game changing moments for Black and White Australia, and and you, you roll in with Nikki Winmar. I guess you know the Damien Mongcross, Michael Long dialogue that led to Michael Long actually complaining and racial vilification becoming something that was became against the rules in football, in AFL football. And the AFL led the way on that back in the 90s. But um, they were, I saw then as unifying moments. But I sit here today and I think mm, they weren't really, because look at all the divisions we're facing now and the backlash we're facing now. So it. It it makes me a bit sad, really.
2: Yeah, I think that's the, I think that is, it's it's nostalgic and it's, but it is sad. Carol, after I watched it the first time, um, and I want to talk about the It's Time song in a minute, but. um, Which was another game changer. Well, that was a game changer. It was a game changer, but um, watching the voice um, and the John Farnham um, piece over the weekend, I jumped on a very interesting website, uh, an international website. I think I'm not. I'm not going to say it was the Harvard Business Review, but it was something to do with Harvard, and it talks. You know, like, what? What? Why do people vote the way they do? You know, how do we? How do we get a, a, an innate response? Like, what do people respond to? Music plays a very profound, can prof- play a very profound um, role in this, because sometimes people are their personal and social biases and deeply held beliefs can be shifted, their personal, its memory, its emotions uh, and other psychological factors. And music, of course, feeds into all of that. So there's a very good um, argument to say that if you you want to launch a campaign, find a really great piece of music. And, of course, music and politics is evidence in many cultures, not only the anti-establishment protest themes of the 60s and 70s I'm thinking of, anti-war songs, but also Pro establishment maintain the status quo, national anthems, patriotic songs. So all sides of the spectrum can actually gather together under a song. And I think John Farnham's The Voice, as you said, is unifying. But let's just um, have a think about 1972. And you and I were small, young people, but I remember it so clearly little Patty singing, It's 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 time. time. Carol, when I was trying to find this clip for Miss Jane, i I actually, you, one I, in front I saw of the video.
1: When they're all standing in front <laughs> no,
2: of No, Well, no, it, it, well, this was in the, in, that, um, in the Horden Pavilion. They recorded it and, and they showed it on the night of Gough's, the launch of Goff Whitlam's 1972 campaign. But they recorded that, pre recorded it. And so the footage is of the recording. And Patty, um, Patricia Amphlett is standing at the front looking amazing, singing this song, um, has tears in her eyes. It's incredibly moving. And then you look around the crowd, all those 1970s um, heroes. Jimmy Hanlon, Bobby Lim, Jack Thompson, a, a young, incredibly spunky Jack Thompson, I have to say. Barry Crocker. I didn't see Barry Crocker Barry there, Crocker but it would have here. been the sort of thing that he was at. <laughs> it was, it, it was, was a who's who. It was a who's who. But they've got this like, close-up of Jimmy Hanlon, which I kind of found, it I mean, nobody knows who I'm talking about, I suppose,
1: but I just found that really... Well, of course everyone will <clears> remember <throat> Jimmy Hanlon who listens to us. What You think our audience is
2: under 20? <laughs> <laughs> but then I thought about some of those songs that really galvanised. Remember when the Sex Pistols came out with Anarchy? You know, some people would argue that was kind of the beginning of the end for Margaret Thatcher. Um, Bob Dylan's Masters of War and all of his protest songs. John Lennon's Imagine—that was a protest song that people still play, and it's yeah, still Paul, Paul Weller and
1: that whole sort of Red Wedge movement in the UK during the last years of Thatcherism. They certainly had a huge say, a huge, um, well, impact. I think it'll be interesting.
2: It'll be interesting for Billy you brag. and Mark. Oh yeah, and Midnight Oil, Beds Are Burning. Uh, you know, I just, I, it'll be really interesting, I think, Caro, in maybe, you know, a few weeks' time, a couple of months or years, to look back and just say, was that weekend when the John Farnham, the voice, when the, when John Farnham and the Wheatley family, representing Glenn, the late Glenn Wheatley, when they all agreed to give their song to this um, Yes campaign, was that a turning point?
1: Well, well, I think they when they agreed to do it, Corrie, things were looking like this was going to get up easily. And what has happened in the time since they agreed is that it has not been the case. So Paul Kelly, as we know, has also written a song. We'll have a quick listen to that in a moment with our friend and a great podcast friend, Rebecca Bernard, singing backup vocals. Bizarre... Well, I don't know if you saw the Jacinta Price tweet. Is it still called Twitter? No, it's called X now, Miss Jane. She said it was his most soulless song or she described it as soulless. And I just thought... Senator Jacinta Price, that was a weird response. I mean, you might not like, you might be voting no, but I don't think it's a soulless song at all. Let's play it, Miss Jane.
2: If not us, then who?
1: We may never get another chance like this again. If not us, then who? If not now, then when?
2: Well, Caro, it's, uh, it's one to keep um, talking about and watching. I want to go into footy now because the football finals, the AFL football finals, kick off this week. AFLW launched last week. And I was very interested to read in The Age on the weekend, or Monday actually, um, The Age Report Top 50 AFL Influencers. Now, yes. I imagine because you were part of the judging panel, that's why you were not in the 50? Or did I miss your headshot? No, then? no, no. It was... Um because yeah, the, you should they, have been. Can I started, just say, you should no, no, have been. you
1: couldn't vote for anyone who worked at the paper, and so Kane Corns and I—you'd been my
2: number one. Darling. Well,
1: I'm—I thanks, Corrie. I'm not sure that that's not quite right, but thank you. Interestingly, it was the 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 nuance of this list, and it, you're right. It was the last names came out. Did they Sunday or Monday? But it, Monday it, was, Monday. it was it was the top fifty was run in groups of ten over the last few days, and um, the criteria included over the next decade.
2: I loved that, Caro. I loved that. So it was
1: people, you had to pick future talent in a sense. I mean, oh, Andrew Dillon ended up being number one, but, I mean, he's just been appointed the AFL CEO, so you'd think he's going to have a fair bit of influence over the next decade, certainly the next five years, at the very least. It was really fun to do. It was quite hard work. There was a group of us, I think there was about eight of us, who all had to submit lists. I vehemently disagreed with some of the names, On the list, and some people's selections, and they probably vehemently disagreed with some of mine. I think some people weren't, didn't take into account the future element. I mean, for example, and this is no disrespect to Gillen McLaughlin or Eddie McGuire, but I'm not sure unless Gillen becomes a commissioner, which maybe he wants to do already, I can't see them having the influence over the next decade anywhere near the influence they've
2: got now. There were a lot of women pretty high up on the list. Well, you know, when I text you, I was very impressed with that. That was so interesting. That um, that, I mean, Chloe Salto is the has is a long time age sports editor. You're a long time age football reporter and eminent journalist. Uh, but it's interesting to, to see that. Um, I imagine all the blokes agree with you as well with the number of women, particularly in the top ten. I found that fantastic.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, Daisy Pierce is clearly going to be not only for what she does, but symbolically for what she represents, a major influencer. Top three, little bit high for mine. In fact, I had Alicia Eva even higher than Daisy. Not that I don't... Daisy Daisy was certainly on and my And Alicia's
2: list. role, for those who don't know?
1: She is a player... Well, she has been a player for GWS and she um, has won coaching scholarships. She's now on the GWS male coaching program as an assistant coach and she is going to be a key player in women's coaching for both the men's and women's game in the future. Jen Watt was obviously very high, who is currently the CEO of North Melbourne, and that won't be her last job. Laura Kane, who's just been made the head of footy at the AFL, an extraordinary career trajectory. And some would say almost a bit too rapid, given that there were some big names who knocked back the job that she has taken. But to think a woman at the age of 33, Corrie, He's 33, mm. and she's taken on a role that people like Ian Collins, Andrew Dimitriou, Steve Hocking and Mark Evans held. I mean, it's...
2: And she's pretty... been doing it for a few months in a caretaker role and done a fantastic job, many would argue. Carol, I was interested that Damien Hardwick made it to the top 10, which obviously, I mean, that to me suggests that your judging panel really believes that the future of the game up north in Queensland, so much of it rests at his feet. I think that's true. He, we all, we each submitted a group of a top
1: twenty. So, um, I've got a, a Damien. Hard, was Damien Hardwick on my top twenty? I can't remember. I think I he might know. have been, but he was probably like, no, you wouldn't know because they added up all the
2: votes. <laughs> yes, I know. Um, dare I say, no one's voting is
1: shown here. People, <laughs> people disagreed with Brendan Gale being higher than Craig Kelly, but I see Brendan Gale's future as um, CEO of Tasmania, which I think. At this stage, it's most likely he will do as extremely important to the future of the game. So that's an interesting one. There are, and Kylie Rogers, the AFL commercial boss, she has every intention of sticking around in the game for a long time, so she's another one. And
2: it was interesting with, um, with the players that you chose for the top ten, Darcy Moore.
1: Yeah, well, he's um, someone who's taken a key interest in the union side of football. And I think when Patrick Dangerfield steps down, I think he's, one of the ones likely to take over as president of the AFL Players Association. Interesting. And I think he's going to be a game changer for the AFL. He's sort of, we saw on Anzac Day when he made that wonderful speech after Collingwood beat Melbourne, that he's a thinking man's footballer, comes from he, an unbelievable lo- pedigree. Well, he
2: comes from, you know, and and son of Peter Moore, who was a great hero of yours and mine back in the day, but... Um, I think no, well, yours and mine, Corrie. I <laughs> know, oh, I had crush. I think you like, yeah, I, I, like. I did have a crush <laughs> on him. But um, I still do, because he was, he used to play golf at, where I play golf. Oh, I mean... He still does, and I don't. Um, but uh, Carol with Darcy Moore, I read in on the weekends a profile on him, or somewhere I can't remember yeah, where Greg I read it. In the yeah, age. and, and he's, he loves reading books. So uh, can I just say to parents who wonder whether what the importance of reading reading to your children, if your children read and they grow up as teenagers and they read and as adults and they love book books, they can speak so well in public because they have the facility of language to fall back on. Yep, it's interesting. I reckon isn't that's it? a real tie-in. It's interesting.
1: Um, look, Paul Marsh has identified some very impressive people um, on his board of the Players Association, and obviously there are quite a few women on there now. And I-, I talked about this on Footy Classified, but there is a bit of a divide between the men and the women at the moment because they're going for this collective bargaining agreement as a joint project, and there is a frustration that the men are saying, look just accept this deal. This is a really good deal. You're not going to get any better than this. And the women are wanting more games and therefore more money. And I'm not taking sides, but it is, there's a bit of a divide at the moment. And let's hope Gillian McLaughlin on his way out and Andrew Dillon on his way in and Paul Marsh, the union boss,
2: fix this. Yeah, well, you had Paul Marsh in your top 10 as well. Yeah, he's, I mean, the age did.
1: Yeah, well, he's. Um, I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon. And I don't just, think so. And just
2: finally on your list at number six, Nick Dacos.
1: Yeah, well, he's going to be a star, and he's going to be a star for the next fifteen years, and who knows what he'll do after that. But speaking of eloquent young men, I mean, he is just extraordinary. It was really interesting going to the All Australian function last week, which was also the m- most valuable player function. Listening to some of these players talk. I mean, even, you know, Toby Green, who to think he would be All-Australian captain five years ago, extraordinary. And yet there he was speaking in a not so eloquent, but very funny way about that as well and self-deprecating.
0: Can I just send a shout out to the AFL for Friday night's AFLW season launch at Icon Park? Ladies, I went and represented.
1: (laughs) Well, Jane, there was also an unbelievable game in Sydney where the Swans had their first ever AFLW win over the old rival, GWS. The coach who's been through a lot, uh, Mick Steneer, made an extraordinary comment about GWS, had a complete crack at them Mm -hmm. and said they've underachieved and they've been the most disappointing club and they've gone through all these coaches and... Very I don't think John Longmire would've
2: done that. But anyway. Well, Miss Jane, I'm glad you were flying the podcast flag at the <laughs> footage. There were I good was. numbers there, weren't there? There
0: was. And Icon Park. Look, I just just wanted to say, like, if you have young kids, especially the girls, like the atmosphere and the vibe Apart from the fact the AFL threw on some free drinks and food. Oh, now we're getting to it. It was such a really <laughs> heartwarming family event, and they did such a great job. And oh, that's yeah, great, the Jane. stands were full. And I just think if you're you know wanting to dip your toe into a bit of AFL but not wanting to do the big boys finals thing at this time of year, get along to the AFLW. It was a great start. Good numbers. I mean, the
1: Sydney game um, five and a half thousand turned up. Most games were pretty exciting, pretty tight. Tigers had a good win over Brisbane, which was a bit of a surprise to me. And there were, you know, there were some reasonable scores kicked. So, very good start, Corrie. Is it time for a drink yet? Oh, I think so. The miles is not well, but we want to thank Prince Wine Store and Miles Thompson, of course. We were going to do On the Nose Chapter 2 this week, Fragrant Whites and Half Bottles We Love. But what we are going – in fact, Miles's half bottle that he gave me is long gone. I don't know about you.
2: (laughs) But we'll do that next week. That's a shame, isn't it? Because I finished off the Pinot that we had last week. Um... I think we guzzled a bit more than we thought but it was a very enjoyable glass but Corey, Miles we had barely a
1: sip. We said we send
2: a cheerio to Miles who's in his sick bed and um, we're going to talk about something very close to all of our hearts which is our favorite wine bar.
1: Well I'm I'm just going to mention a couple of places I went to in Sydney. because I had a long weekend in Sydney when um there was no footy on and you know I have you have you been to Gimlet in Melbourne? Yes. Yeah, yes. it's the most beautiful restaurant, and it's such a great fit out, and you feel like you're in New York in the 1950s. I don't know. It just really works for me. Well, there's a similar restaurant with a similar vibe in Sydney, where we went last at the end of last week for my brother's birthday, called Franca. F R A N C A. Like Gimlet, it is expensive. Like Gimlet, it's quite difficult to get into. I think it's in the Kings Cross Point, Potts Point area. It is so cool, Corrie. It's got great cocktails. It's got a great grill. It's all the things that Gimlet is. Maybe not quite as attractive to look at when you walk in, but I would highly, highly recommend it. I also want to mention the Royal Oak, just a great pub in Double Bay where, as we've talked about, I've banged on about this many times. In Sydney, all my sister and brother's friends, they all meet as couples and different sexes all meet for the Thursday night drink, whereas in Melbourne... There's girls' drink or blokes' drinks in our gang, which I think's a bit disappointing, and I think we need to change that. But the Royal Oak, just a great Our gang
2: pub. or your gang?
1: Just generally. I oh. mean, gen- you know, there's often girls' drinks, don't you think? Well, down at the beach we don't do that. No, I know. In Melbourne... If it's a free drink, you get everybody. <laughs> yeah, No, it's just more when you meet. There's a couple no, of yeah, watering holes people meet at, and I'm like, yeah.
2: why does it have to be... Boys and girls. I just agree. Say, I, I think... think yeah, I think that's crazy. A bit weird. Now, have you got any regional recommendations? Well, I have, Caro. Thank you for the introduction there because I am off to the Port Ferry Literary Festival this weekend, which I'm very excited about. You can jump on their website and have a look at all the wonderful things that are happening over the weekend. And I have booked into Conlon's Wine Store, which is my just about my favourite place uh, in Port Ferry. It's uh, a beautiful wine store and restaurant, so you can buy bottles, they've got a, a, a wonderful front room where you can sit and have a glass of wine, and then the restaurant as well. But Conlon's wine store in Bank Street, Port Ferry would be my go-to. The staff are all very wine knowledgeable, and um, whether you're if you're eating uh, you know if you're staying for a meal, do ask the staff what would they recommend because they are, pardon the pun, full bottle on what's in their store, and um, and if you'd like it, you can then go wander into the front room and buy a couple of bottles to take home. But it's one oh, of my favourite places. Brilliant. It's cozy, it's um, terrific food, and as I said, you can have a glass of wine and a little cheese platter or something. So that's Conlins, and I also just as a bit of a shout out because I'm organising our annual meeting with Brian and Curvis. <laughs> <laughs> and Marg Downey about the literary trivia night at the Sorrento Writers Festival. Last oh. time we went, we met. We went to the Alps in. Commercial Road That's a Paran, great wine bar. That's, yeah, that's near the Alfred local. Hospital. Yeah, it's great. And um, we thought we'd just have one drink. I think we had about three. It was very enjoyable. No, we didn't have three because we drove. We couldn't have had three. But we're back there again in the next few weeks. But I love the Alps. It's very cosy. and um, It's got that little back room with the, with the open fire, which is beautiful. It's lovely,
1: it's And a lovely really... little back courtyard where you could sit with a table in between during COVID yeah. when they think It's a perfect example,
2: stuff. Carol, of Melbourne architecture, inner city architecture, the, the single-fronted um, Victorian building uh, that's not very big and it has a series of rooms at the back like they all do and it's just been converted into this wonderful um, wine bar. So that's the Alps and Conlins. Janie, what about you?
0: Look, I would like to say that Mitchell Harris Wines in Ballarat, Doveton Street. I love it. So when I was working in radio in Ballarat, you know, there's this whole section of town where there were just these old, old, old Goldfields era buildings, not much going on, you know, shops had closed down. And Mitchell Harris came in and sort of sparked, I think, that revival in Ballarat of, hang on, we have these stunning buildings, let's renovate, let's get some great businesses in. Uh, John Harris is the winemaker and they showcase wines from the Pyrenees, Macedon and the Ballarat wine regions. Great food, like the stunning interior of those old red bricks. Gets me every time. Um, really great place for for functions and people have weddings and, and that sort of thing there, but really good wine list and good food. Um, and also in Creswick, where I'm spending a lot more time, Odessa's at Lever's Hotel. So a really old Goldfields era little pub. Uh, but Not just pub food, so great wine list, mocktails, cocktails, great local beers. But Thai food from the kitchen, so not pub food, but great Thai. <laughs> it's like our so... local
2: RSL at Sorrento, <laughs> exactly. Everything. Isn't yeah. it, Carol? I mean, we have we have a Thai restaurant connected to the RSL. I went
0: there with you after our oh, last podcast <laughs> last year. You did too. But I sort of like that where you I want love to go that. out for a great. And this this building is stunning, and they've kept it. Um, Chantel and Cam, who run it, you know, kept it really rustic. The open fire, the Chesterfield couches, great music lineup, and then. Incredible Thai, a really good. I think we had green Thai curry, chicken curry the other night, which is as good as what I've had in Melbourne. Which so. is not great
2: for your wine <laughs> palate, but yeah, look, um, all you know, all power to the regionals, and just on the Ballarat uh, thing too. Uh, Francesca and Charlie with their friends will often because they can walk everywhere. Mm. They'll just they'll just walk out for drinks, get the babysitter in and they meet their friends and they go from, from wine bar to wine bar, because as you said, there are so many wonderful places in Melbourne. And Bellaride. then
1: you don't have to drive home. Yeah. The one place you do have to drive home from, which is probably my current favourite in Melbourne, is Gerald's, which is in Carlton North. It is just the most beautiful wine bar and they really only take walk-ins unless there's a special booking The food is amazing. He's got a a sister or a brother bar in San Sebastian, and but this place, (laughs) Gerald's in Carlton North. I thought you were going to say they had they had another one in South Yarra. (laughs) Oh, it was one that my kids sort of started taking me two years ago, and you run into, you know, some of your erudite Melbourne friends, and they go, "What are you doing at our bar?" You know, because it's on the other side of town, but (laughs) it's fabulous. Now, Miles, you will be back next week. Of course, the best wines can be had at Prince Wine Store or go next door to Bellotta's and go next door to Prince when you're at Bellotta's, that wonderful restaurant, and you can pick some wines to actually drink while you're there. But um, Prince Wine Store is your friend. Remember, the promo code is M E W S, and the listener discount, if you put that promo code in, is 10%. They also deliver Australia-wide. Corrie, we're going to move on now to BSF. For Red Energy. We
2: are, and you are kicking us off with a book,
1: Caro. The Book of Life by Deborah Conway. Um, quite late in the book, you find out um, the deeply personal reasons as to why Deb has called it the Book of Life. Um, I declare an interest here. Deb is one of my oldest and dearest friends. You know her very well, too. She's our vintage. Um, he wrote this book, a memoir, a compelling compelling incredibly honest memoir during covid because like many artists he really struggled with not being able to perform he found some brilliant ways to forf- to perform i might add he um oh look he he somehow got involved in composing an opera with her beautiful partner willie ziegler who she married very late in the relationship um they go through all of that but this is a book about life about love it's about family and friends, but fascinating for me, it's a book about the Australian and the international music industry. Deb, as we know, has endured some incredible highs in her career. He is incredibly self-deprecating and honest about the lows. He, when you read the actual incredible truth about some of the things that have happened to her, I'm amazed at how forgiving she is to some of the main characters in the story. Who I I reckon you know reading it let her down, but he's not only forgiving, but she's pragmatic. He moves on incredibly quickly. He's made so many friends, lost a few, but not very many, in terms of friendships, certainly lost a few to mortality, which he writes about beautifully. But the, Deb was always a great writer. I've known her since um we were both at school, I think we met when we were just starting senior school. We went to different schools, but we met at a slumber party. And fell in love with each other as friends very straight away, really. And um, she was always a beautiful writer. We
2: fell in love over the popcorn. (laughs) There's the episode title, Jane. Um, Did I say popcorn? No, I did. (laughs) But there's a line in this book
1: that Deb hasn't written. And it's actually a line written by her partner, Willie, who... Deb's had um, a lot of, you know, relationships and has gone out with some beautiful men And there was a long time, there was an early time in our relationship when I wondered um, if she was going to be one of those people for whom the grass was always greener because she's so beautiful and so attractive and people just fall in love with her. And then I realised when she met Willie that she'd been, that was the one, that was the one she'd been looking for. And
2: they have three beautiful daughters who are all also incredibly musically talented. She she goes through
1: that relationship and others he does a bit of kissing and telling, not as much as, you know. You knowing, could tell if you were knowing, telling knowing, <laughs> But she's yeah, she's pretty honest. I mean, she's very honest. I mean, some, someone in Sydney, in Sydney she has a lot of friends and she's going to be performing an unbelievable, well, a, a musical really with Willie, which is based on the Book of Life and that's going to be launched in early October in Melbourne but um, at um, Fairfax Theatre, I think. But she... Um, some people have said to me when I was in Sydney I hear it's really raunchy i mean there's certainly sex and drugs and rock and roll but there's also a purity about this book and she's done it in a really clever way it's not completely in um it, it's not completely linear Chron- chronologically yeah. yeah so but every chapter um is accompanied by one of her songs, and one thing she's obviously really well known as a singer and a performer. And she's, you know, she's been the musical director of the Queensland Arts Festival. But she's
2: a great songwriter as well. She's Cara. a
1: great songwriter. Her lyrics are always so fabulous. She's a beautiful writer, and she's a beautiful writer, as it turns <laughs> out, as well. But there's a line by Willie Willie Zigier, Deb's husband, which. Was I just? This really struck me. He writes the foreword to the book. When our careers started, musicians were cultural heroes. Now, as we hurtle towards old age, we find that the popular musician is less a cultural fixture, less influential, but closer to the core truth of what we do. Workers in song, curators of air. Isn't that a brilliant it um, is. paragraph? It is. And it's very, very true. And he, he writes with such affection and love for Deb. And she writes so well about him. He writes, she's brutally honest about some of her relationships, including a pretty traumatic chapter about her father, Carl. But look, this is just a great read. It is a great read and I know I'm biased. In fact, I write a comment on the cover because, um, you know, the publisher said, was I interested? And I said, of course I was. I've actually read it twice now. I read it very quickly because I had a bit of a deadline to do a very quick review and I've read it again and I very rarely do that. And um, it's funny reading a book about someone you know really well because... Um, you hear their voice, don't you? Yes. <laughs> and you remember the, the, the events, you know, particularly international events where we were together briefly in LA or the years are I you lived in, are in you London. Are you in the book that you mentioned? Oh, yes. just Fleetingly in different parts. Yes. Very, very much so. But... Um, I wasn't a major influence on her career. So there are others who, I mean, her her comments about um, Paul Kelly and Michael Gadinsky and oh, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, she also ran the Sheer Madness Festival, this incredible Jewish festival, which she did off the smell of an oily rag. And you know what? It's like launching a festival. Um, she did it purely on a volunteer basis and she did it twice. It was a triumph he's um run broad which was a series of musical performances which again he did it without pretty much any financial backing and got some of melbourne's greatest female artists over three different three or four three or four brilliant brilliant um uh, tours and he and he also revolutionized ways of selling records because they were all being ripped off so badly by the music industry. She invented her own version of Tupperware parties. No,
2: but well, she did. She came to the bookshop a few years ago, she and Willie, and they sang four or five songs and then they sold the CD to the group who were there. So they so, notched up some sales, they had a little salon and it was a very happy night for all. So it was very inventive. She's she's very courageous she she's, ba- um, and she backs herself. She, to put on a festival like that without being paid, without any guarantee that you're not going to go under... All the fears and all the trauma and all the nights when you wake up at three o'clock in the morning with imposter syndrome, Deb's always backed herself. She's believed in her work and believed in the work of others. And
1: it wins through. I think you'll really enjoy it, Corrie. We're going to interview Deb, of course, in a couple of weeks at yes. Crown. But, um, so
2: don't forget to come and see us, everybody. Um, Deb a... Conway will be our guest on Tuesday the 19th of September at 9am.
0: And one we'll of, have one a couple of, the... of
1: books to give away too. Oh, we do. And so one we... of the, one more fascinating, one bit I also really enjoyed was her very honest approach to what it's like when you're a performer and you're ageing. Because, you know, when Deb was young, she was also a model. And um, when we shared a house together, she was involved in that very raunchy ad when her bare bum was shown on billboards around Melbourne, get yours into bluegrass, a jeans ad. And, um, you know, she did, she, very her beauty was very much, and she's still beautiful. I mean, she has... She doesn't dye her hair. She doesn't wear much makeup. She works out at the gym. Never had any work, you know. She's a pretty extraordinary-looking woman. She's bloody lucky. <laughs> she looks after herself too. I might add.
2: Oh, but, girlfriends, um, aren't we so we're so fabulous with each other? But it's an interesting
1: <laughs> book about aging. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a book about youth. Anyway, look, I, I thoroughly recommend the book of life by Deborah Conway. Um, it took her a while to find a publisher. And when she did, they have done a brilliant job. Yeah,
2: we actually, um, I, I don't want to step in here at all and claim anything, but Deb and I had a discussion, gosh, was it maybe this time last year or a bit earlier, I went to see to her lovely home that she shares with Willie and the girls, and um, we had a chat about the book. I can't remember whether she'd been knocked back by somebody or she hadn't um, heard, but um, my feeling was that Alan and Unwin were the absolute great publishers for her. It was a perfect match. And the rest is history. I think they've done a wonderful job with this book and also with the promotion of the book. Well done, Alan. And i when you constantly back great Australian talent. Now, Corrie has been, you've been,
1: what do we call it, YA? Yeah. You've been watching a YA screen, which is young adult
2: for us. Tell (laughs) us about it. Red, white and royal blue on Prime TV. Why was I watching this, you might ask, um, Coco came over from Geelong. I might ask. <laughs> Coco came over from Geelong for a couple of nights. And when she leaves her Charlie at home and Pete's not in residence, we have always have a bit of a girls' night. And I said, I really want to watch this. Um, within, I reckon, probably 15 minutes, the groaning and the rolling of the eyes <laughs> on the other <laughs> side of the sofa. But we were both actually quite, <laughs> quite entranced by this, Caro. So it's based on a 2019 novel of the same name by Casey McQuinston, uh, red, white, and royal blue. And it's the film, it's a story of a love affair between the son of the president of the United States and a British prince. The son of the United States is played by Taylor Zakhar Perez, who is a, I think a real up and coming American acting talent. And the British prince, Prince Henry, who is second in line to the throne, is played by Nicholas Galizine, who you would have seen on um, a few, you know, kind of BBC type things as a young boy or a young teenager. And now, of course, both men are probably, I think, in their mid-twenties. This is a love story. Um, When his mother becomes president, Alex Clermont-Diaz, this is the um, son of the president, the charismatic son; um, he becomes one of her great electoral assets. Caro, the mother is played the president. Madam president is played by Uma Sermon. This
1: is getting more and more. <laughs> this is a flight of fancy. The, the, Who the American whose suits? Prince. Can I
2: say that whose suits are unbelievable? But but Alex's father is kind of Cuban Spanish background. So it's there's a woman president. There's a British prince, and there's the president's son. This is the president's son. The president's son falls in love with the British prince. So Alex, who's the president's son, is sent to England to represent the government at a royal wedding where he re-meets Prince Henry, who he'd met a, f- a couple of years earlier on some diplomatic mission and they had a terrible um, altercation. So they're meeting again and Prince Henry is the second in line to the throne. The spare, as they call them. A most ridiculous excuse for an international <clears throat> incident Occurs. I'm not giving. I'm not. I won't give it away. But you'll just be going like, "What?" And in the name of damage control, both governments, the U.S. government and the British government, realise they have a potential PR catastrophe on their hands. So they arrange a number of seri- a series of cheesy photo opportunities between the president's son and the prince, who are not getting on at all. But an unlikely friendship evolves, which soon becomes a hot romance and then becomes something much deeper. And it's very important to the two men. And that's where the film starts to take a kind of a 180 into very interesting film territory. Both families, both boys, men, are concerned about the impact that this will have on their families and the brand, the family, the royal family brand and the president's brand. And of course, to add more of a kind of a heightened anxiety to this, it's re-election time. It's it's the presidential election. Of course, it is. <laughs> so, will Alex's coming out affect his mother's campaign? Now, I, I'm trying not to give. would have, thought it, I would have give, thought it would have been an electoral <laughs> asset. I'm trying not to give too much away, but the other one. Unla- I mean, Uma Thurman is president. Okay, hold that thought. But Nicholas Fry, oh sorry, sorry, not Nicholas. Stephen Fry, who plays, um, not the Prince king. Henry's grandfather, the King. In one of the most one of the most curious acting performances, trying to present a regal frown upon, we know of course that Stephen Fry in life is gay, so that's kind of funny. But he's he's trying to be so angry and agitated about what's in what's unfolding with his grandson, and uh, it's just really it was a very bad moment in the film. But the upside, Caro, and I do want to mention this. This film has been pitched, I thought, at Millennials. Coco said it was more like Gen Z. And this film, which is a romance, will find its audience. It tackles important ethical issues, I felt, that swirl around the 21st century newsroom, you know, the public's right to know, and the privacy of high-profile people. And you and I have talked a lot about that, in particular in relation to Prince Harry and Meghan, there's also the thought of: Is America ready to embrace a gay relationship in the White House? Indeed, is Britain ready to embrace a gay relationship in the royal family? And I was left with a feel-good feeling at the end of it. Not only that kind of that love can conquer all, but that despite all the barriers that are put against it by them you know the the, the the two men are trying to. Um, imagine what the media managers, the advisors, the spin doctors, indeed their parents are going to say about this, but they stick with their gut instinct and they have a belief that both their um, countries, their people, the British and the American public, will embrace this because it's a love, you know, it's a relationship. So I kind of liked that idea as well. This is a very interesting queer movie. It's great and it just reminds us that love... Comes in all shapes and sizes, and we should embrace it all and enjoy it. And I think it's a, you know, it's an interesting film. But <laughs> there were a few cringy moments, and the script writing. Oh. Is so there a lot up. of wild sex? Ah, uh, there is a bit of sex, yeah.
1: Red, white, and royal blue on prime. I would, that... cer-
2: I would certainly say everybody, nobody, not under fifteen. I would suggest.
1: Thank you. Now you've also been cooking thanks to Cobram Estate. What zesty recipe did? Mr. Cobram's beautiful extra virgin olive oil contribute to this week.
2: Um, well, this is a this is a really lovely recipe, a butterfly leg of lamb. As you know, Carol, I'm often partial to a butterfly leg of lamb. I think um, it is one of the one of the easiest things to do on the barbecue. This cookbook, Carol, is Sabrina Gahur, and it's called Feasts. Sabrina is a British cookery writer, and I think she does great books. And as you can see, I'm holding this up to the microphone. It looked it looks beautiful in this photo. It looked just as wonderful in real life. Um, we had our History Club weekend a couple of weekends ago. As you know, I was hosting – the topic was Constantinople, so I pulled this out of the Middle Eastern cookbook and I've passed it off as a Turkish recipe <laughs> in honour of Constantinople. Um, uh, a butterfly leg of lamb and the marinade is uh, two tablespoons of natural yoghurt, garlic, sun-dried tomato paste, um, chopped thyme, crushed coriander seeds, and two tablespoons of cobram olive oil, plus extra put aside for cooking. And you cook, you barbecue, we barbecued it, you can put it in the oven, whatever works for you. Um, It'll all be in the recipe, how long? Hot oven, 220 or a hot barbecue. But the pomegranate salsa, Caro, is wonderful. And I think you could use this on a number of different dishes. dishes. Just Should... all that
1: smashing and banging gets a bit exhausting, doesn't it?
2: Well, for three the days, picking. my fingernails were stained. Um, my friend Joan at golf the next day said, oh, you can buy pomegranate seeds in a packet, which I didn't realise. But I mean, very half, expensive. The, fu- yeah, half yeah. the fun was kind of pulling them out. But my fingernails looked very grubby. 200 grams of pomegranate seeds, half a cucumber finely diced, one small red onion, very finely diced, one teaspoon of Nigella seeds, eight large mint leaves, finely chopped, two tablespoons of pomegranate molasses, and one tablespoon of olive oil. I didn't have molasses, Pomegranate molasses, I actually used honey oh. with a bit of with a bit of pomegranate juice in it, so it was absolutely fine. But it is a beautiful, beautiful salsa, and you will be having this on repeat. Over summer, good. This is my new recipe. Butterfly leg of lamb. Lots of red fingers for Corey over summer. (laughs) Dirty red (laughs) fingers. So that is Sabrina Gahu's Butterfly Leg of Lamb with Pomegranate Salsa.
1: That was BSF for Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131806? Thank you also for Cobram Estate for bringing us that beautiful Sabrina Gahu's Butterfly Leg of Lamb with the Pomegranate Salsa. Now, Corrie, hard to believe after all that that you're also grumpy, but you are. Guess what I'm grumpy about? Nothing to do with the road or
2: an mm. automobile. No, road. Oh. <laughs> Victoria's big build, Caro, in particular the <laughs> new underground train network, and in particular the announcement this week that Latrobe Street, eastbound between Elizabeth Street and Swanson Street, will be closed from the 4th of September for up to 12 months, add on an extra few because it's a build. Uh, One of my favourite parts of town I will now not be able to um, access. Going into the Wheeler Centre, where, as you know, I'm on the board there, so we often pop in and out, or indeed into the State Library. All of those car parks, all of that area, now under construction. Look, I am with progress. (laughs) You know, the new train network is going to be terrific and hopefully it'll take people like me off the road. But I need my car often because I'm coming from northern, northern Victoria or indeed the northern suburbs and travelling home to the Mornington Peninsula. So often I have the car with me and it's really handy sometimes to just drop the car in La Trobe Street around the RMIT area. Not anymore. I can't imagine what impact this is going to have on our city traffic over the next 12 months.
1: I just hope more and more people start riding bikes, riding Walking. those easy bikes, catching trams and catching trains. I'm really because I'm, once you get your head around it, and I still quite haven't, it is a lot less stressful. Don't
2: you find the CBD is just a mess of construction at the moment?
1: I don't actually haven't been. I have been in there a bit, but I tend to Swanston go. Street. I tend to go to the Dockland side, and you know, luckily I've got a car park there. So, um, but
2: Swanson Street, I mean, all that area, even as a pedestrian, it's just so uncomfortable. Fed Square. Anyway, I'm just saying that's what's making me grumpy at the moment. I understand that, Corrie. But there you are. (laughs) There you are. Another traffic issue for me.
1: Now, which two radio announcements last week? This is six quick questions for Red Energy, by the way. Which two radio announcements last week, upon reflection, came as no surprise?
2: Neil Mitchell leaving 3RW Mornings after 33 years and Virginia Trioli quitting ABC Radio here in Melbourne, the breakfast program. Uh, She's done this job for four years since John Fain resigned or retired and before that she was doing breakfast television and Latrioli, our dear friend, has said, I've had enough of getting up at 3.30 in the morning. If you think about it, neither of those announcements are a surprise. Some people might say Virginia's was. But those well, the, her oh, ratings though, had
1: been pretty – the ABC's ratings have been dreadful, well,
2: haven't they? Well, we also know that she's had some personal dramas. Yep. Her husband um, has been unwell over the Christmas period. She took extended leave at that time and she's just assessed her life priorities, good on her, and decided um, no. Neil Mitchell, of course, has been working 12, 14, 16-hour days since I first met him in 1979 when he was my first chief of staff who famously said to me in week one, um catch a tram to Q, you can meet a photographer there. We're doing a picture story. And I just said to him as a girl from Sandy and Hampton, where's Q? <laughs> okay,
1: settle down on Neil because you know he's my
2: amazing fact. <laughs> I'm not saying anything more. <laughs> Caro, um, as we lead into this week's finals, what's the saddest story you've heard? Oh well, in finals related
1: is Brody, Finals related. Brody Grundy. I mean Melbourne Collingwood the famous old rivals from the late 50s, early 60s, are playing in a big final on Thursday night in Melbourne. Brodie Grundy, who um, had a huge deal at Collingwood, they didn't want to keep paying him that ridiculous amount of money. It was their fault they paid him too much. He went to Melbourne in what, on reflection, was a really poor decision by his management and him. Melbourne already had one of the best ruckmen in the competition in Max Gorn. Uh, they sold him a vision of two ruckmen. There was talk about forward play as well. Brody Grundy is yeah. not a forward. So Melbourne is going into this final against Brodie Grundy's old team from where he was adored and revered, with Brody Grundy basically not playing. He's been he was dropped um some time ago. He's barely played since he um
2: you know, oh, it's really. He's been sad. playing for
1: Casey in the reserves.
2: I know, and I was thinking of mental health issues the other day when I read
1: that story. And now Casey are out, so oh. he'll and it's very unlikely he'll play again. So look, it, it's one of it's a real cautionary tale, and just extraordinary to think that Melbourne are playing Collingwood, and there's no Brodie Grundy. He's openly courting other clubs. Players from Collingwood are talking about the fact that Melbourne didn't revere him. It's all very strange. Mm. Anyway, um. Which coach, speaking of sport, which coach's speech, Corrie, most impressed you this week?
2: Caro, did you see Serena Wiegman, who's the Dutch, but she's actually the coach of the Lionesses, the English women's soccer team? I didn't see her speech. She received the UEFA Women's Coach of the Year Award in Monaco last week, and she dedicated the award to the Spanish side who won the World Cup. And she said, because of the controversy that we've talked about, the Louis Robier's kiss of Ginny Hermoso and so on... She, she said, we all know the issues around the Spanish team, and it really hurts me as a coach, as a mother of two daughters, as a wife, and as a human being, and it has that there's still a long way to go in women's football. I would like to dedicate this award to the Spanish team, the team who played at the World Cup with such great football that everyone enjoyed. And she received a standing ovation.
1: Oh, look, the World's Cup is just – the Women's World Cup is just a gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? Oh, goodness
2: me. Caro, what minor life-changing event underwhelmed and annoyed you this week? Well, this might sound
1: really petty, and if it was my turn to be grumpy, it would have been my grumpy. But um, my beautiful husband has decided our bins are too big. So, you know, we've had to do that thing where you leave – first of all, they've all changed colour. That was all exciting. Two lovely new bins with new red and yellow lids. But now we've decided they're too big, we have to go to smaller bins. Because you've downsized as a family home. Because we've downsized, which we actually did some time ago. And I like big bins, but okay, he's right, we need smaller bins. So you leave your bins outside and you hope against hope that someone will eventually replace it. Well, the recycle bin's been replaced. The normal bin hasn't, so it's been sitting out there for a week. Really annoying because you've got to always take your rubbish out into the street. Doubly annoying is our new mini recycle bin arrived. It's filthy. It's, oh. It's disgusting. It's covered in red clay or something. Like, I would have thought if you downsize a bin, you'd get a new bin, wouldn't you? Mm. Or, and Brenda goes, oh, no, well, they're probably just recycling them. I'm like, this is a dirty rubbish bin. I mean, I know it gets dirty over the years, but it's coming into my nice, clean garage, and I'm not happy. I thought that was pretty slack by the council. <laughs> so take that. Corrie, which new fashion trend will you not be embracing?
2: underwear worn as shorts have you seen this new trend underwear what worn as shorts i'm just going to oh, show you this photo like jocks yeah so sorry everybody but jane will put this on the show notes or something or the oh. or the instagram account so this is emma corrin better known as playing princess di in the crown and she has brought a pantless trend to venice i don't know whether it was the venice film festival oh yeah it was the venice film festival are they film like festival. boxes? They are boy shorts or boy undies. That's the shape of them. But they are actually, it's actually underwear. And (laughs) she had a buttoned up green cardigan with matching briefs. Worn over sheer black tights, she looked amazing. Can I tell you? But I will not be fronting up. Vogue has done an entire story. I'm glad on to it. hear it, Cory. You rock a short, but I don't think a pair of under—it's very kind of you. But I don't rock a short. My I've got my my legs are too fat. But I do like wearing shorts. as yes, we've had this discussion before on the podcast about should you short? At what point should you cut shorts out of your life? But I have to say about this new trend, Vogue has dedicated a story to it, and Emma looks great. She's got great legs, the sheer tights, the tan brogues, it all really rocks, but I'm a bit concerned about underwear becoming outerwear. Anyway, just me. Oh, yeah, and there's a bit of, um,
1: there's one of our, we have a really cool wardrobe girl, they're all pretty cool, at Channel 9, but one of them always, often wears, you know, like a, um, what's it called, a chemise? A chemise? You know, top with the shoestring straps like a chemise.
2: yeah, yeah, chemise
1: over a t-shirt with some cool jeans or a skirt. She always looks fantastic. But that underwear over overwear look is also pretty in, isn't oh, it? Oh, just yeah, it's we'll be really undies in... over skirt. Oh, well, not over skirt.
2: <laughs> I think if anybody's thinking of wearing underwear as outerwear, just kind of think twice. Make sure you get all the detail right, and make sure that you feel comfortable in it because you've got to carry it off with a certain um, style and attitude. I think. Not looking. I won't be wearing it to the NGV Women's Association lunch today, Caro, I can tell you that. I would strongly recommend you don't, My Corrie. undies are staying. My <laughs> undies are staying inside my pants. Um, what is this week's amazing fact? Well, I'm going to talk
1: about Neil Mitchell because it has been an extraordinary career and he has played such a key role really in both of our careers too. So although there are times I vehemently disagree with Neil... I so admire what he's achieved. I mean, he took over the morning show on 3AW in 1990. So what's that? That's 33 years. And for most of that time, he has been number one. He's been a massive influence. He's won a Graham Perkin Award. He's won many... He's won Walkley's. He's won many Melbourne Press Club Awards. He's got an Order of Australia. He went to 3AW, I think, in 1987. He replaced... He stood in for Darren Hinch sometimes... He started off in drive, very quickly went to, after about three years, went to um, mornings. So, look, the announcement of his retirement, as you say, it was not a surprise. In fact, there's been stories written and written and written, and you'll wonder whether they've, I mean, he is insistent that it's his own decision, but there have been, um, you know, there had been articles about the fact that will he or won't he, and you wonder who was driving those stories. But look, to the very end, you know, he has been one of the hardest working Always saw himself as a journalist, one of the hardest working people I have ever, ever met. And I worked with him for a time. So he first came in, I first became aware of him when he was sports editor of The Age and brought you in as a woman football writer, which we've talked about many times. But it's not often mentioned that Neil ran that unbelievable sports department with some of the most brilliant journos, Mike Coward, Trevor Grant, Mike Hearn was there, Jeff Slattery. Richard Yallop. Richard Yallop. Andrew Rule. Unbelievable. And and then you, of course, came. Pete McMahon. So he made a – Peter McFarlane. Mm. He made a um, – well, I, I suppose it was a groundbreaking decision to bring you in and had a, it had a profound effect on both our careers because you then played a big part in me the following year becoming a footy rider at The Herald. So there was that. Then when I went and lived overseas for a few years, I came back from London and Neil was editor of The Herald and he brought me back to be tennis and golf writer, something I wasn't really brilliant at, particularly not at golf. But um, I then stayed at the Herald for quite a few years and honed my craft under various editors, including Jeff Slattery, who was just a brilliant sports editor. But um, so Neil was there. Then he went to radio, I think a year after I got back from overseas. And then when I came into 3AW, um, I probably thought, because I would had a very quick trajectory onto afternoon radio, I probably thought I knew everything. Didn't always take Neil's advice, which was not a good idea. But over the years, we've done a lot of radio together. And I'm just, although, as I say, there were times I, I didn't agree with his comments the other day about The Voice, and I often don't. I mean, he's a populist. He's done some brilliant interviews over the years. He's broken some very big stories. I mean, I remember when he broke the story about Ford um, closing down their Australian operation completely. I mean, that was just such a momentous event. But, you know, other bigger, more impactful human stories as well. He's got all the big interviews and um, Melbourne will be very different without Neil Mitchell. I think he's gone out at the right time, but I think he deserves an enormous gong for what he's achieved.
2: I'd love to see Neil having a weekly column. I think he is a lovely writer and he still has a lot to say and he's certainly changed the agenda on many issues over the 30 years.
1: Tom Elliott's got big hues to fill there and um, well, he'll be doing a podcast, Neil. That's one thing he'll be doing.
2: That's good. And maybe we could have him on here as one of our guests
1: soon, Caro. We could, Corrie. That'd be great, actually. So it's sort of an amazing fact that someone would last that long. I mean, not only did he start on air every day at 8.30, he was always in at about 5, 5.30 and he didn't go home at midday when he came off air. He then stayed and worked for at least two or three more hours and heaven knows what he did at when he got home as well, so extraordinary, extraordinary career.
2: I think we should talk more about that when we talk about Neil. But I just want to say he was one of the um, one of the people, few people, who I think should have been editor of the Age, and it was very sad that he was not. Good comment. Now that's some. Um, that's
1: all we've got time for today.
2: What a Corrie? big show! I'm exhausted. I'm going off to a wine bar now. No, I'm going off to lunch. You are, but you've got a meeting in between. So just
1: get going, please. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, of course, to our wonderful sponsors, Red Energy, Prince Wine Store and Cobram Estate. And don't forget to join us for our live podcast at Crown Melbourne in the Metropole Precinct on Tuesday fortnight. That is Tuesday the 19th of September at 9am with our special guest, Deborah Conway. And please send us your questions or dilemmas. For Caro and Corrie, thanks to LO Botanicals.
0: And Corrie? Don't shoot messenger. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. We love getting your feedback. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook with the handle at Don't Shoot Pod, and you can send us an email anytime to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Of course, you can rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts or you can tell a friend about Don't Shoot the Messenger. That is the easiest way to help us spread the word and support the podcast. Thanks also to our fantastic sponsors, Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Switched to Aussie-owned Red Energy today. Prince Wine Store, bringing Melburnians the greatest wines in the world. And Cobram Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil, grown, harvested and first cold-pressed in Northern Victoria.